sure that I'm hitting this. Hello, everyone. I am that Williams guy back for another episode. And I accidentally hit the record button as I was about to tell the guests that I was hitting the record button. So you may have gotten a few extra seconds that we didn't intend. Tonight's guest is Mr. Kirk Clark, and I'm very much looking forward to this episode, and I hope that you are as well, uh, because Kirk has some different uh, opinions that may challenge some conventional wisdom and what else are we supposed to do with discussion and critical thinking, if that's possible on the internet, then challenge conventional wisdom? Because maybe we're wrong collectively, and maybe we need to examine uh, what we're doing. So, Kirk, if you would, say hello to everyone and tell them who you are. Hello, uh, my name is Kirk. I am the least cool guy in the tactical community. Uh, I'm a normal Joe. I'm involved in sales try to keep my shooting life and my personal life kind of in two different uh, buckets. But I've been a pretty serious student of personal defense for about 20 years. And I've uh, trained with most people uh, worth training with, still some folks I'm chasing out there to get with. And I've done a lot of the uh, a lot of the tests that are out there for people like me, regular Joes, I've kind of tackled and done a pretty good job at accomplishing most of them. All right. Uh, I will disagree with that least cool guy thing. I think you're a pretty cool guy. So, well, as, as in, I, I've never been a sworn officer, anything, not LE. I'm just right. average Joe's, average Joe's gym representing. Well, I think that uh, actually makes you even more cool uh, for the level of accomplishment that you've achieved. And it actually gives you, I think, some credibility to speak on some of the issues we're going to talk about. Um, especially with you having different opinions on some things of because you don't come from the, you know, the vast majority of us out here doing this on the instructor side come from a law enforcement military background and you don't, and maybe there's a box that we're missing here. And so I hope we get into that. All right. This past year, you had an amazing year uh, of accomplishment with shootings when i say accomplishment for the audience i mean like amazing benchmarks that he has hit uh the first one we're going to talk about is he is one of six people who has shot a perfect 125 on the rogers test at the rogers shooting school excuse me if claude warner hears this the elite rogers shooting school uh he's one of six like six six people who have shot a perfect score on that and it's a crazy small world of those six i have met five of them and i know four of them like personally like they're in my phone i can call them and you know first name basis um but only two of those six have done it from concealment one of those is our mutual friend gabe white and the other is our guest tonight kirk so kirk talk to us about rogers so my story with Rogers kind of uh, begins before this time I went last year. Um, mm-hmm. I first heard about Rogers Shooting School from Paul Gomez, who I first trained with in January of 2011. And Paul and I hit it off. And one of the questions I asked Paul was, uh, where are the places I need to go? And the two places he said, I, I, he listened to several people, but the two at the very top of the list he had for me were Rogers Shooting School and uh, Craig Douglas. Those are the people he sent me to. Now, over the years, I've been to Rogers five times. I think I've done ECQC six times, EWO, EDP, a bunch of stuff with Craig. And uh, so I listened to Paul because he gave me good advice. 
the first time I went to Rogers, I knew nothing about it and wanted to blindly throw, blindly throw myself at a shooting test. Um, I, I got the red pin. I won the class champ. Uh, my high was 125. My low was a 105. Um, I went again a year or two later with the idea of really, I wanted to conquer it. I knew I could beat it. And so I did a lot of practice and I worked real hard for it, but I wasn't a serious competitor yet. And I made errors in equipment selection that cost me. But the best I did that trip was 124. I then went a couple times. Only a measly 124. You have no idea how bad 124 feels. Like I literally... When I missed that shot, I remember it was in uh, test uh, nine. And one of the things, I mean, these are the things you got to know when you're really gunning for it. When you're in Bay One and Rogers, you have to know that that front body one target leans slightly to the left. So if you don't step all the way out in the door, the corner of that target will obscure target six. And so I shot target six and the tip of the shoulder about six times. Actually, it was in test eight because it was left-handed. I shot that tip of the body six times trying to hit that head because I hadn't realized, man, if I moved six inches more to the left, I would have been fine. But I had equipment errors. I was fighting my equipment, got a 124, knocked down all the other targets, clean test nine, and wanted to go just like like bury myself in the dirt by the river there in LJ and just become one with the earth and uh, just give up the life. And um, so I went back. Uh, I got promoted to work. My workload went crazy, 60 hours a week. Couldn't train anymore. Couldn't practice much. So I went socially with friends a couple times. And then this year, I decided, nope, this year we're serious. We're going to do it. And I studied every day for it for months. I practiced uh, around Rogers, very differently from how Gabe practiced it, which is interesting. We had a good conversation about that. But uh, I selected my equipment very carefully. And I thought about it very deeply and I was able to have a, a very good performance this last year. Oh, tell us about the performance from this last year. So a little bit of backstory. Uh, my father had had what we thought at the time was a stroke about two weeks before. And it seemed like everything was going well. Like we had him with a really good neuro, uh, neurologist and he was responding to treatment well. And, you know, it just seemed like, okay, he had a stroke but he's getting better. It'll be okay. I'm going to go do this Rogers thing. I'm going to go clean Rogers for pops, come back home. And we'll kind of go in this next phase of life with him, help him with recovery. So I had that in the back of my mind while I was there. And uh, for me, the thought in my back of my head was I ain't going to be all the way over here and not take it home. Like I'm taking this home. And so uh, day one, I cleaned it, cleaned it on Monday. And that was a really good feeling, but what that hit me with was, all right, if I can clean it day one, it, there's more out there. I got five more shots in this thing. I can do it again. So I cleaned it on Tuesday. Uh, so I'm thinking I'm the only guy's ever done it two times consecutively for sure. And um, Wednesday morning, I had a mental error on test one, two, three, four. I believe it's test uh, six, right? Yeah, because it's the uh, second of the one right-hand only test. On test six, which is the hardest test, all the rest of them are actually reasonably easy, but oh. test six. Test six is the widow maker. That's where so many people lose it. That's where you have five no-makeup shots, slide, lock, reload, five shots, one right-hand only. And I was clearing a malfunction, and I used two hands to clear a malfunction. 
Now, what I misunderstood is in test five, that's allowed. Test six, it isn't. And so I got docked for, hey, that doesn't count. because you. So they made me reshoot it. And when I reshoot it, I missed one. So I hit 124 on that test. So then I went again on Thursday and I did a 125 Thursday morning. And then I did a 124 uh, Thursday afternoon. Again, I missed one shot on that same test, test uh, uh, six, right? And then that night I got a call from my mom, dad had relapsed uh, and I needed to drive straight home. So I just drove through the night, got home and I didn't get a shoot on Friday. So I only got to run it uh, five times. So I was able to do three out of five with two 124s that trip. That is an amazing run. Uh, that's an amazing, amazing run. So folks, if you're not familiar with Rogers, get on YouTube and search Rogers Shooting School, and you'll see numerous videos. Uh, Todd Green uh, made a really good video series on all the, the tests. Okay, and here are the people who have shot perfect scores on it. Well, one, Bill Rogers, the founder of the school. Number two, Rob Latham. All right. That's pretty good company in the shooting world to be in. Um, Gabe White and Manny Bragg, and I was actually in the class where they did that and was standing right behind Gabe, watching both him and Manny duel uh, and get that. And then a guy by the name of uh, David Knight, who's actually a personal friend of mine from long before I'd ever even heard of a lot of this stuff, because uh, he's a cop here in Georgia and teaches at the Public Safety Training Center, and David and then Kirk. Uh, so that's pretty small company of people that have shot a perfect score on that course. Um, I have attended Rogers. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. And, no, and this ahead. is something a lot, because like I'll tell people, Hey, I did one twenty five. I'll tell like, like USBSA guys that they don't know what that means. The one USBSA guy I told that to who like understood was Ben Steger. Cause when I told Ben that I, cause I, I shoot with Ben every year when he comes to Texas. And uh, I shot with him, you know, February of 21. He was telling him, hey, man, I'm going to go try to take Rogers. And I shot with him again this February. And he was like, how'd you do? I'm like, well, I played it three times. And he understood because the reason he understands is he talked to Manny Bragg about it. And he goes, man, and just told him Manny, Manny, according to Ben, I don't know. He said, Manny called him and said, dude, this stuff's hard. <laughs> like, he was kind of expecting to, to just go out there because Manny's a legit badass GM, right? Like, Manny's a serious shooter. And apparently at some point he talked to Sager, like, man, this is pretty rough. And uh, so Sager knows how serious it is. So Sager kind of understands it. But like most of the other USBSA guys, they're just kind of like, what? What's that? I don't get it. And what a lot of people don't get is, in my opinion, from a marksmanship perspective, the Rogers Shooting School test is hands down. It's harder than Fast Point, Black Belt Patch, Turbo Pin, TACCON, any of that. It, it's, it is just harder and it's objective and I'll tell you when I went there the first time I was a pretty good shooter my first time I went there I mean I'm better now but I, I was no slouch my first visit and when they first blind run the test and you can just see all the head plates coming up and coming down and the speed they're going to come at the thought in my mind as a pretty serious pistol shooter was oh my lord what have I gotten myself into I can't do this yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a lot to bite off and I don't think people fully understand like like manny and mr knight and gabe and those guys like hats off because it's man it's yeah. rough yeah i've heard a story about a certain very high-end elite uh, operational team that showed up and on the first day said this is impossible and left uh, and i believe that story is true 
Um, and it's so fine. Um, you know, a couple of things. My, my take on Rogers is that once you have the first mistake in a stage or, or fundamentals failure, it leads to a cascade of failure. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, there's two ways you can shoot Rogers, right? Uh, you can shoot Rogers the way that it should be shot and most people should be shooting it, which is, is an evaluation of your personal shooting abilities and your ability to perform a task correctly within human reaction time. The other way to shoot is the way that, you know, be, you know, uh, uh, Gabe or shooting, which is as a pass-fail test. I either do every single thing right for the test or I, or I don't. Yeah. And I actually was interviewing Bill Rogers the other day because I'm, putting up some articles on cryptid endeavors it's way behind because i've been too busy but like one of the things i asked bill is what do the different levels of achievement at the test represent for you because he has uh, basic intermediate and advanced right like what when you were formulating this what does that mean and what he told me was he envisioned someone that gets a basic rating of rogers as someone who is a capable two-handed pistol shooter and if you can get to uh, intermediate, you are capable two-handed and strong-hand pistol shooter. If you get to advanced, because advanced means you only drop 15 shots out of 125, uh, uh, 15 or, you know, kind of in that band, but no, you know, if you're there, you have to be able to shoot weekend only. So if you get an advanced rating Rogers, you are capable at two-handed, right-handed, and weekend. And I never thought about it like that. And I was like, man, Bill, it's like you're some smart guy that's really thought this stuff out, you know? That's a very interesting take on it. And um, I'm going to skip the second question to run with that thread for a second. Uh, the Georgia Public Safety Training Center has what they call a Rogers range. It's the same system, but the target array is different. And I had been to that class three times before I went to Rogers and I had gotten it advanced all three of those times at Gypstick on it, but they ran the scoring system differently than what Rogers did. And I understand now they've gone back to a total plank count like Rogers does, but on the three instances that I went, you had to get your basic, you had to get 80% of the free, what they call freestyle two hand shooting. Then you had to achieve that. And then you had to get 80% of the strong hand only shooting for intermediate. And then you had to get 80% of the support hand only shooting to get advanced. And you had to achieve those in order. So that way you couldn't just by fluke get an intermediate, but not having gotten the basic and then come back, you know, and try to attack them. You have to achieve all three of them in order or it doesn't count. And, you know, with what you were just saying about Rogers, that actually that scoring system actually puts a little more teeth into what you just told us. Well, I mean, think about it. There's 32 shots weekend only in Rogers out of 125. You can't blow 32 shots of Rogers and hardly pass, right? Yeah. yeah. You're running out of space after that. You, yeah. You're a low intermediate at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. High basic. So, yeah. um, and, and that's something I'll say is, you know, people ask me a lot, well, what do you consider like, like a good shooter from like the personal protection duty sense, man, to me, the gold standard is if you can go to Rogers and shoot advanced from concealment, you're a bad dude. Like just period like that, that is a gold standard. You are good. Like my, my brother, Danny comes and shoots it with me and he shoots it from concealment and he was able his last two trips to get uh, advanced from concealment. 
And to me, that is a, a heck of an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, the other thing I would like to point out about it is that it's such a finely tuned razor edge of skill and the lines between the skill and just how any little thing can mess you up. I had actually just started experimenting with contact lenses uh, before I went to Rogers. And what I did not know until I got up there was that it was shifting the dominance in my eyes from right to left. That's not going to work well. Yeah. (laughs) And I was resistant to a suggestion that one of the, the coaches made. He's like, let's take a piece of like clear, like scotch tape and put it down the left center of the left lens of your shooting glass that will obscure your left vision just enough that your right eye will take back over as your dominant eye, but you'll still be able to have all your peripheral uh, vision. And I didn't want to do it because I thought it was a crutch. And then finally he walked up to me and said, you're doing this for one run, whether you want to or not. And I, okay. And he did it. And I shot an advanced score on that one. I was like, all right, we're sticking with this one. And I gave up, gave up contacts after that. Yeah. I, I just, I'll just shoot with blurry vision. It's uh, it, it was that much of a fine tune, uh, fine, just change in skill. And that was the difference. That one mm-hmm. thing was the difference between intermediate and advanced. Yeah. And, um, you know, they made a point too with, with Gabe in his class, uh, the one that we were there for. If you took every one of his misses for the whole week and applied it to one run on the test, that test would have still been an advanced score. And that sounds like your runs. If you shot the, you know, the three 125s and the two 124s, um, or what it was, you said that was a similar level of performance. Because you could have taken all of those misses and applied it, and you're still shooting an advanced score. That's an amazing feat. Anything else you want to hit on with Rogers before we move on? You still there? I'm sorry, brother. And we are back after the technical glitch. So, Kirk, anything else you wanted to cover on Rogers? um no i think it's uh i think it's a highly underestimated shooting test and i think the people who have been there understand what it means but so many people go like oh yeah that's like you know like that's not so hard is it it's like no dude you have no idea like most usbsa guys would really struggle with it because the thing is test uh test number six i believe which is the no makeup five shot right-handed test and test number eight, the left-handed blast drill. If it weren't for those two tests, there'd be a hundred people that pass Rogers. Yeah. But those two tests are rough for anyone anywhere. Yeah. You know, I, I thought of something I'll add here. The one criticism that I have of the Rogers system is that there's no penalty for missed shots other than you don't get points for plates. And so I do see a tendency when people they try to knock over a plate and they miss their solution is just, well, I'll throw a bunch of shots at that plate. And that's the wrong thing for like real life shooting. But I'll count you this. How often uh, does that work out for them? It doesn't. <laughs> so, are they really <laughs> right. That magazine's getting emptier and emptier. And yeah. I'll tell you this, the thing that the thing that's brutal about Rogers is that, 
you have enough time to do everything. There's nothing in there that's like this impossible hard right. standard, but you can't mess up at all. Like, right. like minor errors are punished brutally. And the difference between it and any of the other shooting events is that it is a marathon. You were mentally exhausted at the end of test nine because you've mm-hmm. been shooting for 45 minutes with a couple little breaks while the other guys shoot. But you've done nine different events testing different things with no margin of error whatsoever. So it, it's different than anything else out there in a way that I think a lot of people don't quite appreciate. Yeah. If I remember correctly, they said that it was built around eight round magazines in the 1911. And so there yeah. are some natural pauses in there to allow somebody shooting a single stack to stick a reload to hit the round counts on the stage. So if you're running a 17 plus one gun, you're actually at an advantage at that point. But what, one of the things I talked to Bill about was like, how did you like, what kind of equipment did you originally envision this to be run with? And he said, 1911, eight round mag in the gun. You can have 10 round mags in the reloads. That was kind of his vision. Like, yeah, you can have a stendo in the reload, but uh, eight round mag of the gun. And so I asked him, well, like if someone's doing it your way, what, what's the way? And his way, and his word. Now, of course, you don't get extra points or less points or whatever. I'm not trying to take anything away from him. Mm-hmm. But from my conversations with him, the way he envisions it being shot, ideally, is from a duty holster or a or concealment with a no more than plus two mag extension in the gun. And then whatever kind of reload mags you want, however tall boy you want those to be, right? Yeah. Because there are some spots like you really should have to reload at a couple of those places. And if you're putting in like a 33-round block happy stick, like you're, you're kind of playing against the spirit of the yeah. test at a certain point. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> anything else you want to hit on, Rogers? Uh, everyone go there. It's, you know, uh, Bill is a legend. And if you're not going out to train with him, you're doing yourself a disservice. Yeah. Right. And as a credit to the uh, Gunsight guys, there were four guys from Gunsight, including Ken Campbell in the class that I attended. And, you know, there's there's some, I won't say bad feelings or bad blood between Gunsight and Rogers, but there were some sticky moments in there because Bill actually says some negative things about Colonel Cooper. But, you know, the Gunsight guys were there like, nope we're here to learn your system. We're going to shoot it your way so we can have a, a, a standard for comparison. And I thought that was pretty cool on their part. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, like I'm, I'm a gunsight fan too. I've got an expert ticket for gunsight 250. So I've, I've been to both. And another thing people don't realize is that, you know, Roger shooting school opened up, you know, not long after gunsight did, mm-hmm. you know, it was one of the very first like institutional shooting schools available. Yeah. And it's hidden away in LJ, Georgia. And you got to know where it is to find it. Oh, man. Hey, I was there one year. I think last year we were there during the Apple Festival. So it was very nice. (laughs) I, uh, you know, he gives you those written instructions on how to get out to it. And I started following my GPS one morning. And thank goodness I was driving a a four-wheel drive pickup truck because I I got on some mountain road, dirt road. And I, and I come up to a point and there is a, you have to cross a creek and like with no bridge on the shirt road, like you had to go through the water and I couldn't see the bottom. 
And my father always told me, you never drive through water. You can't see the bottom. And so I had to back this long bed Chevy 2500 HD back down this winding dirt road till I could get to a point where I could turn it around and go back out to the paved road next to follow the written directions. So I should have gotten an advanced pen just for that. You know, there have been a couple of times I thought we're so lost up here in the mountains. We're just going to have to start a new life up here. So <laughs> I, I understand completely. <laughs> All right. The the next uh, thing, you are a two-division grandmaster in Steel Challenge. Let's hear about that. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, this year I classified in both carry optic and production uh, Steel Challenge Grandmaster. Uh, I really believe Steel Challenge is the most underappreciated shooting sport for uh, people interested in personal protection, but also, you know, like actually knowing how to shoot reasonably well. Um, and I think it's deceptively relevant because, you know, it's five targets, every stage. There's only one stage with movement, seven of the stages, the same eight stages every time. Only one stage has movement and it's literally just a little shuffle, you know, a couple yards uh -huh. to your right or to your left. And a way you can envision that stage is it's not five robots coming after you. It's one dude with movement. Uh -huh. and if you visualize that this guy is you know it's like a force on force kind of thing like this guy's kind of bobbing and weaving i gotta stay on board with him the thing people get wrong about seal challenge is you think fast 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 and the idea that got me to grandmaster was oh it's five hits zero misses quickly that's the sport because if you're missing man you might get one miss but past one miss you will not hit grandmaster times you, you just it's nearly impossible and uh, so from that perspective, we're going to do stand and deliver shooting at uh, about five shots at yard at distances ranging from seven to I think about 35 yards. Um, now, don't be wrong, targets, some are bigger than they would be in real life. But I mean, hey, if you want to shoot the target right dead center every time, nobody's stopping you but you. And I think it's a great introduction to competition. And it has less of the stuff that's not relevant for personal protection than the other shooting sports do. Because like the way you enter and exit positions uh, doesn't really matter. The way you stage plan doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? My stage plan is typically left to right. <laughs> like it's, it's not very complicated, you know what I mean? And uh, so I just think it's this hidden gem that's just out there. And I do everything I can try to get Timmy's to, to, to drink that from that fire hose. But uh, I really hope it catches on more because I think it is so accessible for beginners and new people. And it's very rewarding for, for people who take it seriously. And you pointed out pre-show that that was not from concealment because that's specifically disallowed in the rules. That is the worst thing about Steel Challenge is specifically in the rule book, they do not allow inside the waistband holsters and they do not allow concealment. Now, I was trying to get my classification, so I wanted to make sure I did everything by the rule book. Now, we got local Renegade matches that I always shoot from under your t-shirt. Mm -hmm. And my under the t-shirt times are no different than my, you know, like uh, USBSA gear times. Like, there's right. no difference. But um, I didn't want to, you know, have my classification called into class. Like it. Now, could you wear an IWB holster outside your pants under your belt with the t-shirt half covering your shirt? I mean, that's up to your match director. So, you know what I mean? There's definitely ways you can play with a, with a cool MD, but I just, I wanted those classifications to be legit. So I just, I did it their way.
Um, would you make those same statements about Steel Challenge? Would you make those same things for GSSF? I have not shot GSSF personally, but I'm highly okay. interested in it because I'm a big Glock nerd. And I own a, you know, a ton of Glocks and I'm a Glock advocate. And uh, But I have not shot it myself, so I don't feel comfortable sharing an opinion on it. Okay. So I'm the other way. I've shot GSSF. I've not shot Steel Challenge. And well, my so- understanding is it's more of like a traditional, like, kind of bullseye course of fire but you're transitioning between the targets right um well we'll clarify there are two different types of gssf matches there are the big outdoor matches and there's an indoor league which is like a like a typical ppc match kind of format Mm -hmm. uh the outdoor league you you have uh one stage where you have typically five paper targets that have various scoring rings on them and once you get the buzzer you have to put two shots on each target as fast as you can go uh, and they're scored A, B, C, or D, and um, and you know you get time added if you're in like the Charlie Delta or you have a mic. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's just typically a stage that has four paper targets and a steel target, and you got to put two shots on each paper and hit the steel or knock over a a, um, a popper if the range has them. And then you have uh, I think it's four runs on a plate rack. It's been a year, few years since I've shot a match. Mm-hmm. and it's the total time of all your stages and penalties and everything combined and lowest score wins well i uh just a thought occurred to me while we talked about these two sports but i think it's relevant for several things is that one of the things i think you really get in shooting matches and i don't i'm agnostic on what sport i mean i have my preferences mm-hmm. but they're all good is that shooting targets at different focal planes and different depths i think is very important because mm-hmm. if you're like in a lot of like Timmy classes, we'll, we'll line up the seven yard line, we'll hang out there like a long time, right? But I really think that idea of like, I want to shoot something at three yards, something at 25 yards, something at seven yards in the same sequence, you're having to do things with your eyes that just are not the same as if I'm on the same focal plane for everything I'm doing. Yeah. yeah I personally got a lot more value out of Glock uh, GSSF matches than I did. Uh, the IDPA matches that I shot. I've never shot USPSA, so I can't comment on that. Um, one of the things was it was a repeatable test, and so I could measure benchmarks across matches. Whereas IDPA, the only way you can really do that is the, the classifier mm-hmm. um, or the traditional old classifier before they started doing the five by five. Um, and I noticed one thing that was interesting is that the guys that were trouncing me in IDPA. If we showed up at a Glock match, some of the guys couldn't get within 20 seconds of me in a Glock match. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a very glaring difference. As in, you know, you mentioned was still challenge how you get into a position, how you get out of a position. Okay, when track and field is involved, I suck. <laughs> but if it's but if it's stand and deliver, I could do pretty good. And that might have yeah. been why I like the Glock matches better than the IDPA as well, because uh, we tend to want to go to the things we do better at. For sure. And, uh, you know, that that's also one of the things I like about Steel Challenge is the metric tracking part of it uh-huh. is that it's the same eight events. Like, you know your times. And as you're shooting, you know, oh, that was an eight last time. <laughs> yeah, I do a little better than that, right? Yeah. And so while you're shooting, you kind of know what's happening in a way that just is, is not analogous in the, the movement shooting sports like IDPA and USPSA. Yeah. Now, speaking of USPSA, you have made master from concealment shooting carry optics correct 
Yeah, and that's one of the things that, you know, there's a lot of like M's and GM's that shoot from concealment occasionally, but but I classified as M in CO uh, last year from under a t-shirt, right? I know Gabe's done that, and I presume a couple other people have too, but uh, yeah. Gabe is like that uh, cartoon character, Archie, that his closet's full of the same outfit. <laughs> yes, he is. Gabe wears that same shirt from Target. Like he can even tell you what the manufacturer part number for it is. I would not be surprised if he's invested in stock on the company that makes them. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Like every time I've seen him, he's been wearing that shirt and, and, and the same pair of pants. And it's, hey, it's you know what? Uh, I'm a little guilty of that. You look back at like my match footage and Roger's yeah. footage and stuff like that. And, and I got that uh, South Nark uh, T Rex shoots from two shirt on quite a bit for the same reason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I found a, sh- a button up shirt that I liked from one of the big stores like Bass Pro or something like that. And I, I wore it at a class and I really liked it. And I went back and I bought every different pattern of it that I could get in, in stock that day. Uh, mm-hmm. Just, just because they, they, it would be so many shirts that they wore the same way that the hem would be in the same spot and everything. It's just, that's, that's a living with guns thing that I think a lot of people don't get the importance of. Cause like, there's, you got two routes you can do, right? You can do mm-hmm. at an advanced level. You can do what Gabe does and just say, nope, this is me. Mm-hmm. I, I will be a Simpsons character. I, you know, I've got the same look every time, right? And that's awesome because there's zero variation. His draw is identical on the range, in a match, in the streets, everywhere. He's, he's committed to that, and he gets advantages from that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but another approach is, you know, you want to get to where when I try on clothes, because I don't wear a lot of like, like, you know, I've got five, I wear 511s in the range a lot, because to me, it's like a gi for gun stuff. Like, this is here to get torn up and dirty and beat up. It's an analog for clothing. It's not my yeah. street clothes, because I don't want to wear my street clothes all the time. But you learn, okay, what about how these things fit and how these things come together? What are those desirable features about hemlines and, you know, like how much room you have in the shoulders and length and things like that? To where you can go to the mall and try on different things, no, yeah, that'll work. Or like, nope, that's not gonna work. Mm-hmm. And that's somewhere you really want to get to. And the only place you're gonna get that is you need lots of experience shooting from concealment, right? And um that's why I like the idea of, you know, hey, go shoot a match from concealment, because you'll learn so much about it versus just kind of head gaming it, right? Yeah. Uh, I've gotten now where all the pants that I buy come from the Luth Trading Company. Because of the, because of the way they wear, uh, with the shirts, it's it's funny how like a little bit different of material, a little bit different of the hang of the shirt really changes the draw. Absolutely, like when I went to Rogers, I had five matching shirts. Like, you know what I mean? Because I don't want to be messing with. Oh, it's a little bit different on Tuesday. It's a little bit different. Like, you know what I mean? And is that mm-hmm. gaming it a little bit? Absolutely. Yep. But I mean, I didn't bring a Taurus either. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like setting yourself up for success is a part. I, who was it? Someone was saying something at some match or event, and you know they they use suboptimal uh, ammunition or something. And you know my retort was just, "Hey man, gear selection is part of the match." Yes, and, it is. Uh, and it's not just part of a match; it's part of a. God forbid, if you're ever in a fight for your life, the gear selection you made may impact your outcomes. Right. Yep. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I don't do the appendix carry thing, is because my job is my pistol's got to be a strong side hip and i've got 23 years and i don't know how many thousands of reputations of that's where my pistol is 
Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get crosswired in that pivotal moment, you know, at the convenience store off duty. And I have to go to my pistol and it's not where I expected it to be. Yeah, you know, and my thing on that is like, I, I am a, uh, a Penix Perry advocate, but I'm not an Appendix Perry zealot. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, I've classified master class. I've uh, podiumed the two IDPA majors. The only two I've been to, I've managed to podium at from three o'clock. You know, my seal challenge stuff, GM from three o'clock, right? Yeah. So it's not like I suddenly forget how to shoot, you know, right. depending on what one is. But if you're living and your job is you're carrying a gun at three o'clock all the time, mm-hmm. man, I probably just carry three o'clock. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be messing around with the appendix too much. Yeah. Um, and because it's all give and take. It, there's no, there's very little free lunch in all this stuff. And if you're going to tell yourself, like, what's really important to me is, hey, I own my draw. Well, man, three o'clock's great. Why not? Yeah. Um, one of the, I'm, I kind of thinking about when I retire, I might go to impedance carry with a uh, stub nose K frame revolver, but, oh, yeah. uh, uh, just for the concealment option of it, because right now, if I get busted carrying concealed, big deal. What are they going to do to me? Don't matter. I'm legal here in all 50 states. So it's not like I'm going to run into legal problems unless I cross into some sort of off limits place. Uh, but that while it would still be legal for me to carry under federal Leosa uh, in all 50 states, the headache quotient could go up. And so oh, I'll, probably, yeah. I'll be much more concealed. And I actually had an experience uh, late last year where I was legally carrying were in a location, but there was a high headache factor had I gotten discovered. Hmm. And so I actually went to a J frame uh, for that. And I don't like carrying just with a J frame as a primary. Um, and that goes, you know, Claude Warner's thing for firearm instructors, get a real job. Mm-hmm. And try well, to pull- I'll, and I'll, I'll jump in on that is, you know, this is where there's, I think there's no such thing as the gun culture. Mm-hmm. There are gun cultures and there's mm-hmm. dozens of them, right? And um, I hear things like I was in this forum and it's a, it's a high signal forum. It's a good place. And somebody was complaining about IDPA. They won't let them carry it. Now, now they're allowing appendix, which is super neat. But they're saying, oh, I can't carry my gun like like. And somebody commented something like, well, they don't understand that most people carry appendix with a flashlight now. And I just looked, I just read that and I was like, what what level of echo chamber are you on my dude have you been to a public range ever like one you're lucky if they own a holster two mm-hmm. you're lucky if they've ever practiced with it three if they practice with it you're looking probably at some you know abomination from uncle mike's with you know a glock 19 a glock factory sites like there is no well everyone's doing this like in your subculture yes but one is your subculture right about that? And I think it's an open question. Yeah. And two, it's just, it's very myopic. You're not really getting, a, I think, an accurate picture of what goes on out there. And quite frankly, you go to an IDPA match, stand around at the end of the match and watch people, they go take their gun off, put it in a bag and put that bag in a car, in, a, in their trunk, and they don't put on a carry gun before they leave the range. Oh, no. I. <laughs> the hilarious thing is what I do is I get off the line, I take off my three o'clock holster, I grab my uh, uh, loaded gun from the car. It's mm-hmm. already in the holster. It's holstered. And I yep. just put it on appendix and I drive home. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, I've seen people look at me like, uh, what are you doing? I'm like, well, what have you been doing all day? Like, <laughs> what is, what's this for? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I always have my carry gun and I just take the whole holster off and I secure it in the vehicle yep. while I'm shooting the match. 
And when the match is over, the game, you know, the, the gear for the match goes back into my bag. I put it on and I pick up my holstered pistol, just like you're saying, and I put it back on. And, uh, you know, you do see some people because ranges have cold range rules. You'll see one or two people stop outside the gate and get out and put on a carry gun so they're not violating the range rules. But everybody else that left didn't do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. And, well, that's, that's you know, I'll touch on two points. One that we were getting into about the, you know, Claude Werner's good real job. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with that. Um, you know what? Don't be wrong. I'll carry some pretty huge guns. You'll see me rocking a Boresight with a X300 mm-hmm. and an SRO on it. I like that gun. I shoot it real good. You'll also catch me rocking a, uh, you know, a uh, slimline Glock with uh, 48, also sent to Boresight, but iron sights with the shield mag. You know, like, you might see me with either. Every now and then, you might see yeah. me with a SIG 365. You know what I mean? Like, but I practice with all of them. And I'm pretty good with all of them, right? right? And I think there is this thing where there's a kind of a Timmy bro thing where it's if you're not carrying a metal frame, this, that, or the other crazy gun of the week, uh, you're going to get killed in the streets. And part of me kind of wants to just say, bro, if you can't do it with a Glock 19 with iron sights, maybe you can't do it. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of a counterpoint. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's a feeling I have. I've fully explored it. All right. Well, speaking of that, you you are also a master in USPSA from concealment with an iron sighted pistol, correct? Uh, no, with carry optics. Carry optics. Okay. All right. I mean, if I, if I put a couple, if I crank that, I'd probably do it limited minor too. But okay, that was uh, from Steel Challenge was two divisions, so that was the uh, yes. with iron. Uh, I'm an IDPA master in three divisions. I want to mm-hmm. say CCP, uh, ESP, and CO. Okay. Cool. Um, how do you equate skill from IDPA to USPSA? Like, uh, if you're a USPSA B class, where would that put you in IDPA? Or can they make that cross comparison? I, I think it's easier to go the other way. I think uh-huh. a uh, IDPA master is going to be a pretty strong B class USPSA shooter, okay. like a rock solid B to a weak A. All right, John Hearn. That question was for you. John and I were actually having that discussion yesterday. Yeah, I, and I and that's from just seeing guys because I shoot both. And I shoot with guys who shoot both. So that's just my evaluation. Now, one thing I will say is that 5x5 five five classifier in IDPA, man, if you want to evaluate where you are as a shooter, I think that's an excellent evaluation. And okay. to give you an idea, like if, if you're going to be someone that's uh, getting paid to teach people how to shoot and how to defend themselves, man, you should really work to be expert at that 5x5. Five five. That's not master. That's the one right below it. But if you make a living, you're a local trainer, you're whatever, you should mm-hmm. really push yourself to be able to do expert at that nine times out of 10. Yeah. So anyway, when Bill Wilson first rolled that out and before IDPA had adopted it, uh, I ran it in a, in a class for all my guys at the sheriff's office and I, I have them running it and I hadn't shot it, uh, but I have them doing it. And so a couple of the guys were like, all right, big guy, uh, what do you think you would do on this? And I looked at all the, the strengths and everything said ah uh, probably about 24 seconds and they said well get up here and show us let's see you do it because most of them were shooting mid 30s uh, low 40s and i stepped up and like cold out of the box shot a clean 16 and mm-hmm. i had and like wow like blow the smoke off the barrel and put it back in in the holster <laughs> and uh i typically am around 18 or 19 on it clean that day was one of the days the angels were on my on my shoulder on it uh yeah, yeah. Sometimes I'm just a little over the, I think the last few times I've shot it with carry optics, I've been like 19 something, which is just over the, uh, just below the master line. 
on that. Yeah. And that's been kind of a benchmark I've been using as I've been training with the optic pistol was that test. It, it's an excellent test because it covers a lot. Mm-hmm. And at 10 yards, you have to know how to shoot. Like, like there's just a 10 yards. It's hard putting an eight inch circle at 10 yards with a time constraint. There's just, you can't fake that, right? You either know how to do those skills or you don't. Yeah. And it's a pretty low round round count test. I think it's 25 you, rounds. Yeah. To give you like a mas- uh, national level of skill benchmark. Well, because I think the Range Master Bullseye course is also 25. So you could just yeah. put those back to back with one box of ammo and have yourself a pretty interesting day, right? Yeah. There you go. Um, some of the other benchmarks, you are tied at number one with my sheriff at 1033 on the casino drill. Yes. And I actually, uh, I actually have your run on video. That's on my YouTube channel if anybody wants to go look at it. Man, I was desperately trying to figure out how to get that on my Instagram, but I'm too much of a boomer, man. I couldn't figure out how to do it. Okay, so, I'll, I'll download it for you and send it to you. Cool. And uh, yeah, no, casino drill is great. I mean, if you want to ask me what, what I think I'm good at, I think I'm good at evaluating various shooting tests, taking them apart, and figuring out how to uh, win at them, right? And casino drill, what I like about casino drill is it's, in my opinion, a uh, task overload drill. It's mm-hmm. trying to make you think about a lot of things at once and seeing how you shoot while you're managing a lot of different things. And I think that's a really neat test. That's one of the reasons I like it is yeah. uh, it's unusual in that kind of like task overload kind of thing. Because yeah. most of the times like shoot the thing, reload, shoot the other thing. This is shoot the thing, surprise reload, different targets. I got to count like, I, oh, I got to do a reload and then resume counting, right? And that's what discombobulates all sorts of people. And that's why I like it. I think it's a really good drill. Yeah, it's it's not a hard drill that's hard to shoot clean in the part time. But no. it, is, it is a drill that if you want to start pushing, say, to get below 13 seconds. I, I'd the- say like mid 12, 13 is where you start getting spicy. Yeah. Mid 12 is a spicy score on that. And that's where you start to get where you cannot make a mistake. No, you're, you, there's very little. Like when I look at my video, I've watched that video of me getting 1033. Like I got time I can make up there, mostly on the reloads. My reloads weren't great, but my shooting was about as good as I can shoot. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, in, now this is one thing that statement I want to make just kind of for the world. Or hopefully the conversation goes this way and we talk about, you know, like the relevance of matches and what mm-hmm. they mean. What you do on your home range with your buddy recording you does not matter. Right. Like, cause I could show you somewhere. I, I think I made the lead already somewhere. There's a video of me shooting like, like a nine twenty casino drill clean. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't matter. Like what yeah. matters is in class with uncle Tom, with, you know, Tom watching you and you not wanting to screw up in front of Tom, Tom's cool guy. And if you screw up yeah. bad, don't make fun of you. Right. So yeah. you, you want to do it right. That is a totally different thing than, hey, look, Instagram, I'm a superstar, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Like, just, I don't care about that. No one cares about that. And if you brag about that too much, you're, you're kind of telling on yourself a bit. Yeah. Uh, one of my pride moments is, is that I'd like the top six scores or seven scores now uh, on the casino. Five of them are from our agency and the other two are you and, uh, and Lane Thayer. And Lane's taken from one of my classes. And so it's that's pretty big deal for me 
personally on a pride point that my guys have succeeded. And I love to tell people at, at range master classes, like, yeah, I can shoot this usually in 13 something. And I'm not even the top five of my agency. Mm-hmm. Well, what it shows is the type of coursework you're developing with your guys puts an emphasis on uh, multiple task management while you're mm-hmm. shooting. Yeah. And you know, that's, if you're at, I'm not a cop, but if you're asking me what would be a useful shooting skill set for a cop, that seems pretty handy. That would be a useful skill set for anyone, I think. Agreed. But generally speaking, y'all are kind of arriving at chaos and trying to thin slice what the heck's going on and right. establish order, right? Which yeah. is a different mission set than you know I have, right? Yeah, but once the fight starts, the mission's the same for everybody. Fair. Yeah. Um, you've got two turbo pins from Gabe White's standards. Yep. Uh, one with irons, one with a dot. You know, that's one of those things I've taken this class three times and I can shoot light pin on demand and I can Mm -hmm. give you, I can give you some turbo runs, but for me to pull a turbo pin is going to have to either be a massive amount of work or a fluke day. And so I'm, I've satisfied myself. If I can stay at the point where I shoot a light pin on demand, then I'm happy with my skill set. The fact that you pull two turbos out of that is just outstanding. Well, I'll share a funny story. Like how I got this last turbo pin is kind of funny, right? The first one was just I took class with him in Oklahoma, circa like 16, 17, sometime around that. And uh, this one, I kind of had this weird idea because I got my black belt patch with my second black belt patch with uh, Scott Jelinski in February. I won TACCON, the paper match and the shoot off in March. And then I won 25 Rogers three times in June. And I was kind of looking around. That was all I had on my agenda. And I was like, man what if i went for a fast coin and so i signed up for langdon i pulled the fast coin and said all right what's left what if i've already got a turbo pin but what if i could do all this in the same calendar year so i just couldn't get to gabe my work schedule you know and we're doing a lot of health problems my dad just i could not get the stars to line up and uh john johnson invited me to you know uh do a little ai for him in a class he was doing at conroe and i realized man, maybe I can get Gabe to Houston. That's a straight flight for Gabe. So yeah. I, I, I paid for a private, got plane tickets, flew him over. And uh, so I helped AI that class with John. And then uh, Gabe, I paid for a private lesson with him because you can take a private with him and shoot for the pin. Mm-hmm. And I did a little, you know, like three, four hour lesson with Gabe. And I'll tell you, by that December, I was physically and emotionally exhausted and completely burned out on shooting. Like, when I was headed up there, driving up to Conroe, I was like, oh, what am I doing? This is going to be such a waste of time and money. I'm bringing poor Gabe out here, and I'm going to blow it because I'm just exhausted. I don't care about shooting right now. I'm burnt out. And so it's my turn to shoot uh, for the for the pin. And it's uh, the bill drill first. And traditionally, that man, I, if I'm good at something, I'm good at bill drill. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, all right, this is, this is my power totem. I'm good at this stuff. I'm going to start off great. And I blow both builders, two fails. Wow. And I'm, and I'm sitting there going, ah, that's the one I'm good at, <laughs> right? And so I'm now not really in my best mental space, but I tell myself, okay, look, I'm down two. I got to get four out of the next six. Do what you know how to do. And I clean the next six. So I got the next six, fine. But I just had a kind of like that, had that wake up call of like, yes, I am burnout. Yes, I am tired. I still have to make it happen, right? 
And then after that, we shot John's test, and I set the record with test with no name, which is kind of hilarious. And uh, he, he got all the runs where we blew it uh, afterwards. He got the run where I blew it afterwards because I had one where I didn't love my mags right, so let me try it again. <laughs> I blew the next one. Yeah, but the one where I actually got it did not get recorded, which is the funny part. But and that was the closeout for my shooting year last year. Right. And you were the record holder on Keeper's Test, right? Yeah, uh, 214, if I remember right. I, I, I think he's done it faster. But I think yeah. I'm the student, the student record holder like in class. Well, I got to point out to you, while you do have a patch from me on the test for which details are conspicuously scant, you are not mm-hmm. the in class record holder. Damn. <laughs> so now I just have to come take a class with you, Lee. I, I just threw that down on the table right here. Yep. Yeah. yeah I, my cheek stings. It hurts the gauntlet. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, you're not the in-class record holder. Uh, the, the record holder is uh, Scotty Cronin from Gunset up in Ohio. Uh, I've had to learn that, you know what, there's a lot of good shooters out there, and there's just yeah. no way to be the best at everything. Yep. And, all right, uh, you have won the TACCOM match multiple times. Yeah, uh, I can run through that. So the first time I attended was in 16. Uh, I, I, man, I want to say my first class with Tom – it was in either 12 or 13, probably 12. And uh, I took class in 12. I think I did my first instructor mm-hmm. class in 13. I really enjoyed his teaching style. I really enjoyed that he was uh, grounded. His approach is grounded in personal protection, but he doesn't use that as an excuse for nobody to know how to shoot well. Like he right. wants you to shoot well too. And I gravitate to those guys, right? The guys in Dallas, the people that are grounded in personal protection but expect you to know how to shoot too. And because yeah. a lot of guys want you to know how to shoot, but don't know anything about fighting. There's right. lots of guys that, you know, know a lot about fighting, but man, watching them shoot makes you depressed. Right. Yeah. And uh, so I like the guys that kind of have that, that Venn diagram, like a good overlap of the two. Mm-hmm. So I really like Tom's training and I've taken, I can't even count the range master classes I've taken at this point. And so I'd always heard about Tacon, Tacon, and this was actually the last one that was in Memphis. It wasn't in the mothership. It was at that yeah. police range out there. Yeah. And I went into that. Now, at that point in my life, I didn't do really any competitive shooting. I was just doing classes and Timmy stuff and just my own practice. And so I went to that, and I heard, okay, there's a match. I'm like, all right, who's in this match? And I was just like, oh, my God, these are like the legends. These are guys whose books I've been reading since I was a kid. These are like, you know, like, like I'm a gun nerd. These are like my heroes, right? I'm like, okay, the goal is not to embarrass myself. <laughs> like, I just need to go and not make a big error, and we'll see what we can do today. Because I didn't, at that time, my only real shooting accomplishment, I want to say, was uh, my expert ticket at Gunsight. So, I mean, I, I was a pretty good shooter, but, like, mm-hmm. I hadn't done much big at that point, if, I'm, if I recall correctly. And um, so I went into it with the attitude of just – don't miss. I know how Tom uh, structures things, and Tom is extremely unforgiving of uh, poor marksmanship. So all I got to do is shoot as fast as I can and not miss, and uh, I think I'll be okay, right? And so I shot the match, and it was funny. I went out and had dinner with my brother and uh, my dear friend, Mike Hickerson, who's one of my favorite people. And he was like, he's a little East Texas dude. He's like, how'd you do the match? And I was just like, man, I don't know. I don't know. There were some rough spots in there. You know what I mean? It wasn't perfect. I kind of, you know, messed up a reload a little bit, whatever. 
and the practical part i'm not sure i did it fast enough you know because there's a paper portion and then like a little mm -hmm. mini like uspsa stage with the mannequin targets tom likes so i wasn't sure how i did when they published the results there was as much distance between me and second and second and ninth place yeah and that was a really weird moment for me because yeah. i was i was aware at that time that i was pretty good that you know i could go to gun classes i'd usually get you know top gun or you know almost or whatever but it was that moment i realized i had the potential to be good good if i applied myself mm -hmm. and that was like an awakening for me that was a I'm going to get good, good. I'm going to go to the next level. Because at the time I was doing jujitsu. I think it was like a blue belt at the time, like or almost a blue belt. So I was doing the martial arts thing and I was doing the shooting thing. But I realized, man, I can, I can really, if I push myself, probably do some cool stuff. And that was a turning point for me as a shooter. Yeah. And I got to tell you, with those, those TACCOM matches, man, usually they are such fine-tuned that there's usually not much separation between the, the top shooters and it's like the top 10 to 15 spots can completely flip from one year to the next. And yeah, like, no, for sure. Uh, like ev evaluating TACCON is a test, right? Cause that's, yeah. that's, I have a gimmick. It's that. So evaluating TACCON, I'm giving away all my secrets. I'll, that's not going to have a harder time. Mm -hmm. I get all this stuff, but evaluating TACCON, what, what is consistent is one, every year it's different. So every year you don't know quite what to expect, but Tom has certain uh, philosophical beliefs in how he structures things that you can always rely on. Tom doesn't care too much about reloading because reloading doesn't matter, right? right. Um, Tom doesn't care too much about fancy footwork because fancy footwork doesn't matter. What Tom cares about is drawing quickly, firing accurately, and keeping your head in the game while you're shooting, right? Like for correct mm -hmm. procedural orders of things. Yep. And so, you know, it'll probably be something along those lines. You can kind of, when you're mentally preparing, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but those will be the key principles, right? Yeah. And uh, what I like about the TACON match is there's a large element of randomness to it. Uh, this does not make for good USPSA, but I think, you know, from a philosophical perspective, in all of this, I think something, I think you agree with me to be true is that you can do everything right and lose. Yep. The gunfight can start with you getting shot between the eyes and your turn is done, right? Yep. Uh, there's no guarantee that your skill or awareness or experience, you know what I mean? There are uh, Delta guys that have been killed by goat herders. It happens, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so one of the elements I like about TACCON and the way Tom structures it is there's no guarantee like like you can lose no matter who you are yep. um, but at the same time he focuses on skills that matter and so he'll usually do a, a, like some sort of paper exam and that's kind of just to get your top guys kind of mm -hmm. you know like put, put in a barrel and then he'll do something that has some element of hit factor you know five yard roundup or something and then after that, it's the shoot off. And, you know, this last year he did it both as, you know, there's an award for paper match and mm -hmm. for uh, the shoot off, which I think that's the first year he did that, but I wasn't there in 19. So I can't tell you. Yeah. So 17, I go to the match and I'm in this weird place where I'm like, oh, dang, I'm, I'm the champ. Like, what, what does that mean? I've never been champion anything in my life. I mean, I did, I did good at impromptu speaking at UIL when I was a kid, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I never really been a champ, nothing else. 
And so I went to that match and literally before I went up to shoot, and they're like, all right, Clark, Clark, coming up. I got a phone call from uh, now my business partner saying that one of our most important key employees in the business had just died in a boating accident. Mm. And not only was he a key employee, he was just a hell of a human being. His sister had received major head trauma. wasn't sure if she was going to make it. Like it was just a bad scene for somebody I cared about and somebody who beyond just being a coworker and someone you respect and value uh, was a very important guy who knew where a lot of the keys were in the business. So I get that call. I, that's in my computer. I was like, all right, Clark, come up and shoot. It's like, oh my God. Okay. Let's, let's try it out. And uh, I won 17 by like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second. I barely won that one. That one was tough. 18, I managed to fillet my hand the week before uh, tack on 18. So my left hand, my left index finger was in a splint and I was desperately trying to get it to heal. Uh, it would not heal well. Uh, I got to shoot at Aaron Ackland's place. Uh, Aaron's a heck of a guy and a good shooting instructor. Go spend some time and money with him. Uh, Aaron, let, I just said, man, I need to try to shoot. I need to see if I can even shoot with his hand, you know? And so Aaron let me go to his place and just practice with him for two hours. And at the very end of that practice session, I said, you know what? I'm going to pull the trigger with this left index finger and see what happens. Pulled the trigger on one round out of the Glock 34 and completely reopened everything, blood everywhere, nightmare. And I was just like, oh, man, okay, we're just going to figure this out. So my goals changed to make it to the shoot-off. Like, I don't care if I lose. I just, just get to the shoot-off, and I'll be satisfied with myself. So I shoot the paper match. I do okay. We do five-yard round off, round up as the uh, the kind of like the, high, the hit factor section to get to the last 16 guys. And I have to shoot the five-yard roundoff portion, the left-hand portion, using my middle finger in my left hand, which is kind of funny, but I managed to pull it off. And uh, then I get to the shoot-off, and I'm like, oh, hey, well, maybe I can do this. You know what I mean? Like, maybe, maybe this is a thing that can be done. And uh, I make it through a couple rounds. I get to Gabe. Gabe beats me fair and square. You know, like, I go for one, he goes for one. And then on the third one, I just have a bad mental error and I screw up and Gabe is just the samurai he always is. and He takes me down, right? Yeah. Then they have me shoot for against another dude to see who got third, who got fourth. I got third and that was my story on 18. And then we can go on to 21 or if you want to talk about something about the previous ones, we can do that too. Well, I'll point out that 17, I finished 14th and I had a malfunction. Which is very respectable. If you're and clearing I, the mouth and getting that high, that's a good run. And I actually thought that I had a better match in 17 than I did in 18, where I finished six, and you actually eliminated me in the shootoff. Um, I'm sorry. It's all right. Hey. I still love you, Lee. <laughs> and he said, I love you too, man. And it's like, I remember walking up and going, This is the only chance I ever have to beat Kirk because he's got like a splint on a finger. And then it's like, I didn't even do it now. And I walked off. Um, uh, but what the funny thing about that is the very next year, Gabe won it in 18. The very next year, neither Gabe nor I made the shoot off. Oh, yeah. it's ta there's What's beautiful about TACON is there's a large element of chance. I mean, there's a reason in USPSA, they basically got rid of shoot offs because it's, it's very chance oriented. 
Mm-hmm. But real life is chance oriented. So that's why yep. I don't mind it. And the other thing is it's a, uh, it's very entertaining for the spectators and that's yeah. part of the game. We're, we're entertaining people too. when We do this right. stuff. So yep. I, I like it. I think it's cool. Right. Yeah. Like if you want to see who is the absolute best shooter in every possible respect, compare two people's performance at USBSA nationals. That's how you yeah. do that. Yeah. Tacon's doing something different. Yeah. Yeah. The, the 21 Tacon, something happened in the finals and I, I was standing there watching it. I didn't, I, I wasn't able to shoot the match in 21. Um, but I went over to see the finals and who was it you shot against in the semi in the, when it was down to the top four. My was first two- round, my first round was against Kegel. Uh, I don't remember. If I went against someone else. At, yeah, I did go against someone else. Uh, I don't remember the order because one of the yeah. two in the middle was my buddy, one of my dearest friends in the world, Marcus Clemont. Yeah. And it was hilarious because we both got on top 16. And I looked at him. I'm like, Mark, I love you, but I'm going to take you down. Yeah. yeah. Who was it <laughs> you beat in like, the final? Uh, the final final was against a Gabe Schutzer, who's another guy I've been shooting with since oh. I shot a Todd Green class with him in 2012. Like, I've been in a long time. All right. So the semi yeah. was against Tim Kelly then, if I'm. That was it. Yeah, it was Tim Kelly and Marcus Clemon. I don't remember which order, but I shot the two of them in the middle. It was against Tim, and the what I, the instance I'm thinking of. I was standing there watching, and you had been rocking along, and I I don't remember if Tim got you on the first one or if you won the the first run on it. But there was a physical and mental switch that you flipped, like your whole physical demeanor changed and was like all right boys this is it i'm going to do it and i looked over at whoever was standing next to him i said this is over give him the trophy and and they said oh no this isn't like whatever i said no this is over right now give him the trophy kirk just won this thing and he went on that run and and won it was what happened was i actually went nine and oh so no one got around what happened was our poppers kissed like our poppers like touched on the way down hey kirk Kirk, your phone all of a sudden is is freaking out, going something really. Can you hear me? Are we better? Yeah, you're really faded out. You're really uh, tinny sounding. Oh no! Do you want me to call you back, or do you want me to see if I can check out the audio? Yeah. Sorry, man. I live in the hinterlands, so you know it's it's hard. Okay, I, I can barely hear you now. Okay, I'll stop the recording and we'll restart it. I'm sorry, man. Sorry. All right, Kurt, go ahead. So there I was. We're shooting with Tim Kelly. Uh, I remember I went nine and zero in the shoot off. So what happened was Tim nearly caught me. Like our our poppers kissed, right? Like, and that's too close. You don't want that. And that's when I said, "All right, I got to do what I know how to do and cut out the noise." And I kind of went beast mode after that. And that's the thing I learned how to do at Rogers was for many years, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what can I do to reduce anxiety, you know, breathing exercises, four-step breath and things like that. And at Rogers, I don't remember what trip it was, but I finally realized, man, I was just hands shaking anxiety ridden. And I just shot a 124 or something like that. And I was like, if I can shoot a 124 freaking out, I can shoot anything freaking out. <laughs> and yeah. so I, I no longer spent any time trying to like manage my anxiety. Rather, it was 
like a radical focus on task fixation. This is what I need to do. This is what I'm going to let enter my mind and nothing else. And however I emotionally feel about it is unimportant. And that I reiterated that to myself after that very close call. And then after that, it was, it was pretty, pretty good. Yeah. I just, man, it was your actual physical demeanor changed. And it, it was just like, okay, it's over. It's over. All right. So let's move on. Uh, BJJ Purple Belt. Yeah, I'm really bad at jujitsu, but I think it's fun. It's, it's like golf. You don't have to be good at it to enjoy it. Uh, but uh, actually, I, I haven't trained in two years because COVID. I didn't want to get dance sick. So I dropped out, uh, you know, just thinking, oh, this COVID thing will be over in a few months. And well, that didn't happen. Yeah. And so recently, last week, my dad passed. And uh, so I knew I needed jujitsu more than ever, kind of as a therapy thing more than anything. And so I actually did my first roll back in two years, almost to the day uh, last night. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I've gotten to do the Cecil Birch's coursework quite a bit. Uh, got had the privilege to AI for him, I think once or twice. Uh, love his stuff. I've gotten to do a lot of Craig's coursework. I caught half Paul Sharp's MDoc. I've done uh, some of the Red Zone stuff with the Jerry Wetzel, which is excellent. I've also done a lot of BJJ seminars with, uh, you know, like people like Jeff Glover and Andre Galvao and Tom DeBlass. I've done wrestling seminars with Josh Barnett. I've done two Sambo camps with Riley Bodycomb. So I've tried to get, you know, I know a little bit about a lot, but I'm not amazing at grappling. I don't have the right attributes, I think, to be an amazing grappler, but I don't want to be illiterate when it comes to fighting. So I just keep working at it. One of the things you mentioned pre-show is that there's a lot of crossover between like the BJJ and the firearms guys and the differences between the sport and the application. You want to touch on that? I'd say there's two sides to that. I'd say that, um, that on one hand you in both have a thing that is in theory about self-defense but there's a lot of questions, I think, open questions about, well, like, what do we mean when we say that? And then also the majority of the community, people who actually participate are sport oriented or recreation oriented, right? And so you have that tension between the, this is about violence, which is a very serious subject and keep it playful, have a good time, go have fun at the range, right? It, it's there, that same tension exists in both. So I think that's one kind of node of questions and things we can talk about, working on or talking about. And then the second node is, man, I hear some of the same dumb stuff in both these communities and it drives me nuts. And because you'll hear stuff, you'll get like the true like jujitsu Kool-Aid drinkers who are like, a jujitsu, it saved my life. Like uh, the smaller man can beat the bigger man. And, and don't get me wrong, it's true. The little guy with training can whoop up on a big guy without training. But they do the jiu-jitsu. One of the greatest things about that sport versus other arts is in the big tournaments, they have an open division. It's open to anybody, no matter how big you are. Guess what? It's the heavyweights and super heavyweights who win 95% of the time. If you get some middleweight in there getting first or second or something, he's famous. He's selling DVDs after that, Right. So while that fundamental idea of jujitsu is true, that the smaller, weaker, more skilled person can defend against the larger, stronger person, when skill is equivalent, size and athleticism are absolute factors, even in, you know, the quote unquote gentle art. 
but you'll get these jujitsu people. You're like, Hey, you want to learn how to shoot? You want to maybe carry a gun? They're like, Oh no, I know jujitsu. It'll allow me. I'm like, man, there's a lot of stuff jujitsu can't do. <laughs> right. Like, like two dudes at seven yards with guns, man, jujitsu yeah. will do very little for you in that scenario. Right. Yeah. Um, but conversely, you know, there's a stereotype, you know, like kind of like the, the fuddy gun guy who's like, well, I'll just shoot him. They try to get too close. I got perfect situational awareness. I'm like, man, if the fight starts with you getting sucker punched and the dude falling on top of you, your shooting skills are unlikely to be helpful from there, right? I mean, perhaps, but you're in for a rough time, especially if this dude, presumably, he's wanting to get in a hand-to-hand altercation with you, either larger, younger, or more athletic than you are, right? Yeah. And so both sides often pick the non-answer, which is they reframe the problem to one where they can win and not have to change or grow. And that's just weak, man. That's just weak energy. Like we should run from that. But I hear that in both communities all the time and it drives me nuts. Yeah, that's that's just like you can only be attacked by one person if you're carrying a J-friend. Oh yeah, no, you're you're good, dog. (laughs) Don't worry about it, right? (laughs) Well, that, so an interesting case study in that, because I'll admit, dude, there's before in the in the dark times before the Filser name existed, uh, there may have allegedly been times that you know my carry gun was a Caltech P32 10 round mag, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's not much of a gun. And past seven yards, it's hardly even a suggestion of a gun, right? And um, there's a case study. I think Asp did a video on it. And it was this guy, he got ambushed by multiple attackers, I think around his car outside a store. He had a J-frame, he returned fire, and the guys took off. They decided they had a pressing engagement elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But then he he fell for one of the negative outcomes that Claude Werner talks about, and his instinct was to pursue. And so he leaves concealment and cover with his now presumably half-empty J-frame and proceeds to get shot. Now, I'm not trying to Monday morning quarterback that guy. He was a real human being in a real scenario under real stress. And those situations are unpredictable and chaotic. And you were dealing with urges and instincts that are not entirely logical or natural, right? Or or are very natural. So I'm not trying to talk bad on him. But man, you know, I'm not saying that a Glock 19 might have solved that for him. I think decision making was the real error. But going out there with a half full J frame is, uh, man, you're a tough dude. (laughs) It's suboptimal. Yeah. Uh, all right. I think we have established here convincingly that you have the credibility in the background to talk about the things that we're going to talk about next. Uh, because I don't think anybody at any point now can say, well, he's not done this or he's not done that. So he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you want to go have a head to head match for Kirk, I'll help arrange that. And, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and we'll see. All right. So, Kurt, what do you think normal people can be taught and how do we do it? So there's the non-controversial part of my thoughts on this and the controversial part. And uh, the non-controversial part I shared with uh, John Johnson on my recent Ballistic Radio episode with him, but it's worth repeating because I think it's highly important. And I'd like to get this idea out to as many people as I can. Uh, one of the ideas I got from William April that was uh, – really changed my thinking on a lot of things was the notion he introduced to me of you know people looking at something looking at jujitsu or looking at you know carrying a uh, you know sig x5 legion with a flashlight on it everywhere whatever 
uh, and saying, that's not me, right? And just saying, I'm just never going to do that. There's just some people, it doesn't matter what I tell them, they will never step foot on a jiu-jitsu mat. There's some people that will just never carry a gun, no matter what you tell them. And that's fine. That's not a bad thing. And we shouldn't shame people about that. And we shouldn't treat people like lesser thans because of that. Because we all have our own level of comfort and engagement. And there are some people, there are a lot of people that should not have a gun, just temperamentally or you know, intellectually or just their decision-making processes or their emotional maturity. There's a lot of people who shouldn't have a gun. Those people, by and large, deserve to protect themselves regardless. And so that's where things like uh, some of the stuff you're talking about with the net the other day, I thought was brilliant is like boundary setting and, you know, like trying to decide what you're comfortable letting people do or say or engineer situations around with you, right? That is hugely important and largely untalked about in our community. The idea of, you know, okay, physical security, you know, I got the big lock and big gun and all that, like, but like financial security, man, can I afford to live here in this house with a big gun, big dog and all the dog food, all the ammo, and I build here, you know, like that's, that's a different question. And I think we need to do a better job of letting people in to the extent they want to be in and they're comfortable being in because you and I are experts, you more so than I, because you have real world experience, but you and I are experts. Our civil liberties and ability to uh, exercise these rights depend on the millions and millions and millions of people that don't know much, right? And so the more we can do to take those people who have that fundamental, intelligent, true insight where they say, you know what? What if someday someone tried to hurt me or someone I love? I would want to be able to do something about that instead of just pretending it's not possible. Because most people just pretend it's not possible. I shouldn't have to lock my doors and other you know, foolish statements. Those people that have that insight, if you start showing them like X300s on your, you know, Walther Q4 steel frames and bill drills and stuff and like, well, yeah, jujitsu is good, but really you should be doing MMA and I don't know, MMA is not real either. You should be doing combat sambo. And like you get in all these crazy discussions, right? And you were just tuning out millions of people who have the human right to defend themselves and whose opinions and voting patterns determine your rights too. And so I think we need to do everything we can to say, hey, you know what? Pepper spray is not ideal. I don't think it is. But if you're just not going to carry a gun, man, pepper spray, flashlight, awareness, maybe some force on force with those items on you, hugely valuable. And I don't think we've quite cracked the code on that yet. And I think one of the reasons we haven't cracked the code on that yet is one, there aren't enough of us, right? I mean, Claude talks about this in mm-hmm. depth. But two, the traditional trainer model is you have a guy typically retired or semi-retired who travels around and does two-day classes because that's what the logistics of the industry can support. It doesn't make sense for that guy to come do a half day somewhere, right? Um, it's not worth driving four states over to do a four-hour class. It, it doesn't make sense. It's not bad. It's not fair to that instructor. So we have this model where we're very good at doing two-day classes, and we're very good at doing like big institutional NRA-style training that's very 
okay at best, right? <laughs> so we're really good at these two chunks. But I think, and I don't have the answer for this, but I'm asking the other people who care about this question to help me think about it, is what is that next, you know, and I see some of the things Filster's doing and some of the things that uh, uh, Langdon Tactical are doing as far as like, hey, normal people, here's some ideas, here's some way to think about that. I think that we're moving in that right direction, but I'm not sure we're there yet. And I'm asking all of y'all, like, we're, how do we get there? Because if it's just us one percenters, like tactical people, that's not enough. Yeah, I think that's one area in which the martial arts community is so much further ahead than the gun community is, you know, you, you can do martial arts in any room. Yep. But finding a place to shoot is much more challenging. And what I run into with the gun business is there are some very fantastic indoor ranges in my area, but they won't let anything but their in-house instructor teach classes there. And 90% of the time, that guy might be okay, but 90% yeah. of the time, he's not you, right? Right, right. And I did during the during the pandemic and when ammo was was just so hard to get, I did a bunch of half day classes. Yeah, I did well, a bunch of 50 round workshops is what I call them. And that managed to keep my business sustained and go in and got people to the range because they could get 50 rounds of ammo. But in the long term, if I have to charge a range fee on top of what I've got to get for to make it worthwhile for me to come to it, that's pretty expensive for a half day class. It's hard for both of you. It's hard for the student. Yeah. It's hard for you. And it's not even great for the range owner either, right? Like that, right. that's a that's a workable arrangement, but but not ideal. Yeah, and so I, I, it may have been Tom Givens that, that originally said this, that the biggest threat uh, to the Second Amendment is people running out of places to shoot. I think that's a very wise observation because uh, I'll tell you, there were years there uh, where I lived where my only access to range was an indoor lane range, no rapid fire, no drive from a holster. Mm-hmm. God forbid, they want to make sure no one accidentally learns how to shoot in there. So, you know, it's essentially yeah. go and turn your money into noise, and, you know, pay them money for the privilege of doing so. And uh, man, all I worked was weekend shooting and 25 yard bullseye. Cause guess yeah. what? So you, you work weekend shooting 25 yard bullseye and that's it. So I got pretty okay at both those for a while. And then a real range opened up and like all truly great ranges, it's kind of a little bit of benign neglect, right? Which is what you're looking for. I think a lot of the infotainment ranges actually aren't that much better than the, you know, oppressive ranges. But, um, you know, it's a berm and privacy and that's really all you need, right? Like, that's it. Like once you know what to do, once like you and I, that's all we need. Now a newer person needs more structure than that. Right. Yeah. But uh, I'll tell you, the other guy who kind of cracked the code on that is uh, Carl Wren uh, from Carol Training in Austin. Carl has been offering that, like, instead of that two day class, that four, like, half day classes in a bundle mm-hmm. thing for a long time. And if you live in an urban area big enough to support, like, to have a clientele that can mm-hmm. show up frequent enough to make that work, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that model because most people yep. do not have a 16 hour attention span. Period, right? Or, or they don't have sixteen hours worth of time to give to, or time off, or yeah. ammo, right? Or you know whatever. Yeah, um, that's why I've gone to like even when I travel teach, I'm doing two one day classes, and yeah. now I run the risk of not selling out both classes. So I tend yes. to look at it as that I one day of that I need to make all my expenses, and the other day is the profit day. 
the other day's revenue day. And uh, if I sell both of them out, then then great. Um, but you know, you you think about it. If you got young children at home, which is, would would be a motivating factor in to learn to defend yourself, well, you're not. Are you going to miss their soccer games or their softball games or baseball or basketball or dance recitals or whatever to go learn how to save them? What's the point of saving them at that point? Well, like like I think there's a. This, there's a paradox in this problem. I think it's a paradox that I think is uh, indicated in kind of Claude Werner's work in negative outcomes is that the truth is the majority of the time the U.S. grandma, grandma presents a gun and the bad guy leaves. Mm-hmm. Or brand grandma shoots the bad guy once in the shoulder and he goes, I have pressing engagement elsewhere. And he leaves. Yeah. And everything turns out pretty okay. Mathematically, that seems to be what happens. Right, even with untrained, poorly trained, poorly equipped, you know, people, right, right? with the the lumpen proletariat of the gun world, you know, it usually works out. Right. Now, the other problem, though, is all the time you and I read about people, kids getting guns in purses, and guns being left in cars, and guns getting stolen, and the burglars jumping over the fence, and the dude shoots him in the back. We read and hear and see this stuff over and over in your community, the law enforcement community. We've endured a lot of bad shoots that have had big social repercussions and a lot of questionable shoots that not even is it good or bad, you know, maybe, you know, lawful, but awful. that have had huge effects on our, on our culture and bad shoots have had you know, effects on our culture. And just saying that, well, grandma with the J-Fan usually gets done. Uh, that is a true statement but it's insufficient. And how do the couple hundred maybe of us reach the millions of people out there with J frames and soccer? Yeah. I I don't know if it's possible and I don't think it's, you know, I don't think you're ever going to be flip the switch. Yeah, we're there, but I think anything we can do to be moving in that direction Mm -hmm. is good. And, you know, from a business sense, if you can come up with a way to tap into that market just for some sort of awareness training, okay, if you start pulling, you know, a percentage of those people into the other firearm stuff or the other martial arts stuff, okay, that may grow your customer base there. But quite frankly, for a lot of the problems, as you said, a flashlight's the answer. Uh, you're not wrong at all. Like I've had, cause I've had, you know, I'm like everyone else. I've, I've got, you know, female friend having problems with, you know, ex-boyfriend or something like mm-hmm. that. You know, sometimes they come to me, especially <laughs> I grow easy or something. And I'm just like, nah, fam, like, yeah. you know, here's pepper spray. Here's a flashlight. Here's a, you, you know, check your circumstances, you know, like boundary setting. Let's talk mm-hmm. about what you allow. When will you call the cops? Let's, let's game plan. What would make you call the cops on this guy? Like, those are the kind of discussions I have, you know, I'm, I'm not yeah. the gun fairy, right? Um, I'm the advice fairy. I'm happy to help. But uh, I think too often we get very tool focused and uh, we want to be creating thinkers, people who can think about problems and come up with solutions that meet their unique circumstances, because there's so many unique circumstances. I can't possibly come up with a solution for all of them, but hopefully I can help you walk through how to come to your own conclusions for what works for you 
and not have it just be an ego self-defense play of a, I shouldn't have to lock my doors or anyone comes in this house is getting shot, whether or not it's the special needs kids next door. Like, you know, what? Yeah. like, frankly, I don't have a lot of respect for either of those attitudes. Right. Yeah. And uh, there's way too much of both in our yeah. culture. Yeah. And man, there's just the things that kill me, like these nightstand dump pictures like with somebody's some you know going to a class somewhere and they put all their stuff out on the nightstand in the hotel room and they take the picture and post it and then you get the well dude where's your whatever you know where's your x where's your y or people are critiquing it like you're going to get killed because you don't have the newest uh weapon mounted light guys i've been a cop for 23 years i don't carry a weapon mounted light on my pistol oh my god lee i'm telling you i'll send flowers to your house that's right yeah I got nothing against them. I just don't, I don't do it. I don't like the way the, the bulk it adds to the gun, the weight it adds to the gun and the other problems that, that it brings about. And I can't, well, you can search with it. Paul uh, Carlson made some very good points on that in a recent episode. I want my light separate from my handgun. Now, yeah, to, to me, that's a shooting light, not a searching light in my right, estimation. Right. Now, when I'm actively, we're going into a, somewhere to hunt a bad guy. Yeah. I, I, and I'm putting on a belt that's got rifle mags in the mag pouches. Yeah, my pistol does have a weapon mounted light on it at that point. But my just generally walking around, no. Now my long guns all have weapon mounted lights on them. Oh yeah, no, that's mandatory in my opinion. Right. But um, well, like you're getting into some of the social factors of this, and I think the mm-hmm. social factors are, are not commented on enough. And I'll tell you, you brought up a point that I thought was interesting earlier. Hey, the martial arts people are, are pretty far ahead on this, and and I actually agree with you on that. Um, now, don't get me wrong, most martial arts are, are really bad, right? Like mm-hmm. your typical just like strip mall where the sign just says martial arts. Mm-hmm. Man, what's what's going on there? You may be teaching kids how to believe in themselves, but it, that's yeah. it, right? Um, Stop or I'll break another board. Yeah. And uh, so in the mar- you have martial arts, traditional martial arts of varying quality. Some of them have some attributes that are pretty cool. You know, uh, some of them are fantasy camp, right? Um, and then you have your fight sports. Now your fight sports, none of them are perfect. Like none of them is the, mm-hmm. the whole total answer, right? But, but that's kind of like your your real striking arts, your Muay Thai, your kickboxing, your boxing, and your gra- pretty much all the grappling arts. It's hard to have like just a fake grappling art just due to the dynamics of how they work. Yeah. So, you know, your sambo, your uh, uh, jiu-jitsu, judo, uh, wrestling, of course, wrestling arguably being the king of the grappling arts and uh stuff like that and what they do well is you decide one day you have that fundamental insight that's the beginning of this for so many of us is you know what i want to be able to take care of myself you see the sign on the strip mall and you go in and if you're lucky it's a jiu-jitsu school or a muay thai school or something for real if you're unlucky it's something else and you may pay a lot of money and you may have good friends, but you're not going to know how to fight out your way out of a paper bag on the other yeah. side of it. Yeah. If you're lucky and you end up one of those good places, what will happen is, like, when I go with jujitsu guys, uh, you know, I love my jujitsu brothers and sisters. Like, when I was there last night for the first time two years, I was nearly in tears. I was just hugging everybody. It was like Oprah, you know what I mean? And, uh, like, guys who were, like, baby white belts on my left are now, like, like tough blue belts, you know? And uh, there's a social part of it that's important and it's why people keep coming back you make friends to jujitsu you miss the people at jujitsu you want to know oh man i hear his kid just going off to college or, oh hey i heard he's got a big promotion at work 
you love those people and you sweat and you suffer with those people and you develop bonds with them. You fight them. You know which ones of them are brave, which ones are smart, which ones are cowards, which ones are bullies. You know all that and yeah. in a way that you can't fake, right? And so you get tight with these people in a way that you really only get with coworkers, family members, and friends, right? Yeah. And that social element is hugely powerful in getting people to come back. You get the same thing at a shooting fight, at a USPSA yeah. match, right? Yep. So at a USPSA match, USPSA is not an ideal recreation of tactical training for street fighting. It is not, right? But, man, oh, my, my buddy Tim, he's such a hilarious guy. I'm all, I wonder what he's going to say this week. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, oh, my buddy Billy, he's working so hard on his footwork. I'm, I'm just, I got to watch him. I got to coach him. I got to help him. And you get involved with these people and you spend time with them and you laugh together and you make fun of each other and you try to build each other up if you're in a healthy club. Now, don't get me wrong. The shooting sports has a really toxic culture, in my opinion, mm-hmm. in a lot of places. There's way too much like these are guys play fighting in a sport where you never get hit. Yeah. And that breeds some weirdness, I think, in a certain degree. But there's also a lot of wonderful people too, right? That's what kept me out of shooting sports forever is I kind of got involved in a little bit and I did not like the social interactions I had there. And I left for a decade and it cost my development as a shooter. If I've been doing the kind of matches I've been doing the last two, three years for the last 20 years. I would be at a completely different level than I am now. Yeah. But anyway, so that social aspect of, hey, I get to go train with my friends and exercise and have fun, or I get to go out on the range, I get to you know, bust caps and get practice with the same couple of people every week, and we get different challenges and different things. I don't think just a normal jujitsu class is the ideal environment for learning self-defense. I don't think a USBSA match is the ideal environment for learning just pure self-defense. But you're practicing a lot of relevant skills and you're tricking yourself yeah. into doing it because you want to go hang out with your friends. Yeah. And that's something the Timmy community just doesn't have. Yeah. We haven't cracked code on that. We don't have. Right. Yeah. Because it's cost 500 bucks every time I want to go take a pistol class. It cost me 20 yeah. bucks when I want to go shoot a match. Right. Yeah. And that's one thing where I would love to have the teaching opportunity if I could get the logistics of it on that martial arts model. Where if I could have people for two hours, one night a week for six months, where where could I get them to compared to the one or two day class model once or twice a year? In my, I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but in my estimation, I imagine you would get so much more, so much faster that it would kind of knock your socks off. Yeah. In um, my estimation. You know, and there's a series of books out there by an author named Dustin Solomon where he kind of gets into the mental part of that uh i've kind of experimented on the fly with our personnel i have found that when i say have like a jailer that i'm supposed to be getting ready to go to the academy if i bring that person in and their first exposure uh to firearms training is we sit in a climate controlled room with dummy ammunition and i teach them how to load and unload the pistol correctly and and all of that that stuff without firing a live round our first trip to the actual range is so much more productive than if I get them to the range and have to teach them how to load and unload the gun. Well, you, you were speaking to the choir. Let me tell you this. I recently, uh, yesterday, um, I have a nephew who he's lived far away from me my whole life. So I haven't got to spend a ton of time with him. He's in town, you know, uh, for dad's funeral. And so 
his mom wanted me to take him shooting because, you know, I'm the shooting guy, quote unquote, you know, just like all of us are. With our friends and families, we're the shooting guys. So if someone wants to do some shooting, we usually get called. And so he said, hey, you know, take, take, him, take your nephew shooting and, you know, let's just show him the ropes. Well, I spent three hours with him. We fired 30 rounds, 22, and 10 rounds of nine millimeter in three hours. Now, there's a lot of talking. There was a lot of dry firing. I talk about, I begin with the safe, my safety ramble, I do my safety ramble. Then we talk about how does a firearm work? What are the parts of the firearm? How do you make it loaded when you want it to be? How do you make it unloaded when you want it to be? How do you confirm which of those it is? Then we go over a very broad principle-based discussion of you know grip and sighting and posture. And uh, then we do it a little dry and then we go shoot. And we did two seven yard groups on a, on a B8 circle with the 22. And I said, all right, now we're ready to test. And we went and shot the test at 10 yards. And I th- want to say he did something in like, like a 96 in 998 with the 22 from the test, 10 yards, first time, low ready oh. with the beeper. Then I hand him a SIG, uh, SIG Legion and uh, uh, 320 Legion. And we said, all right, now we're going to do center fire. So I let him dry fire a couple times, feel what the gun feels like. And in 980, he scores, I think, a 93. These are the first center fire rounds he's ever fired, right? But he has a conceptual understanding of what's happening. Whereas I think, and not to cachet, but I think in a lot of institutional environments, it's I'm the range master. I'm supposed to teach him to shoot. Let's go to the range. And that I'm not sure is the right answer at all. I think there's a lot more talking involved in all this than perhaps we would like to admit. Because yep. for you and me, we shot a lot. Like, like talking about it, sure, the philosophical stuff's fun. But like just the mechanical stuff, you and I know it by heart. It's kind of boring, right? But for that new person, they've never heard this before. Yep. It's huge yep. for them. Yeah. One of the things I'm seeing with our personnel now that I'm more hands-on with the training is we've done a really good job of stressing holster skills over the years. And I think our people do an excellent job. They can handle that part of the equation. Just get the gun out, get it on target and get shots. Uh, but anything beyond that, they start to struggle. Mm-hmm. And so if the gun doesn't run right or whatever, they have a malfunction or whatever, they're not responding to that in a manner in which I think they should. So that's where our training focus is going for the next while is going to be on things like malfunction clearing and stuff and gun handling, just straight up handling the gun. Well, I think there's two parts to that. I think the first part is, again, I'm not a police officer. I don't want to yeah. speak to your business, but yeah, in my estimation, there is no technical shooting skill more important than holster work right. because it doesn't matter how good a shooter you are if you get shot in the chest twice while the gun's in your holster. Right. Don't matter. No matter where your splits are. doesn't matter how accurate you are. doesn't matter. You can shoot left-handed only at a B8, 100 yards, and you know, get 100 out of 100. If you can't get the gun in the fight, nothing else matters um and after that you got of course accuracy um and you know maybe transitions but if you're going to pick a technical skill to focus on holster work and like that's the thing people people think i'm crazy when like i'll take people on the first day and i'm teaching draws but there's a reason for that the reason for that is i get you four hours instead of three hours we're going to do holster work is once you know how to operate a holster you can safely practice on your own how many times you go to the public range, you see people dangling guns around, pointing at their legs uh-huh. and their hips and everywhere. That to me is the ultimate sign of someone that is unconsciously incompetent. Yep. 
competent shooters have guns in bags and holsters. And if I don't teach you what that looks like, I'm only ever going to shoot you a couple times, right? You're going to shoot on your own as much as you want. And if you don't know how to do that safely, I haven't helped you, right? So I think it's good that your deputies are good at that because they're going to be good at one thing. Man, that's that's the one I'd pick, right? Yeah. Of course, accuracy, right? That's, mm-hmm. They have to be able to hit. Um, but the other side, and you bring up an interesting point that I know Chuck Haggard's talked about, is that like in real fights, guns malfunction a lot more than they do on range. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you watch USPSA guys. There's a lot of USPSA guys, you know, the train gets off the tracks as soon as something weird happens. Like a double feed happens and it's just like, oh no. Yeah. Like if they just have a failure to fire, that's easy enough. They can fix it. But once double, Mr. Double Feed happens, like I've seen some some weird attempts at fixing that in USPSA, yep. man. Yep. All right. Um, we're getting tight on time, so we need to move on to a couple of the other questions. I really love to stay on that topic. Well, we, I want to get to the other things we want to discuss. Uh, what do you see as the value of competition? Um, one, it, it, it tricks you into doing work because by considering something fun, you don't want to think of it as work anymore. Like last night, I went to jiu-jitsu for an hour and a half and got beat up. Most people don't want to do that. I convinced myself it was fun, so I did it, right? And I'll say there is a big difference in just technical skill level on the whole. There are exceptions, of course, between your competitive guys. And I'm not talking your world champs. I'm talking your guys that show up your local matches, right? And your, let's say your average like street cop. Now, there's nothing about being a cop or a soldier or anything else that prevents you from learning how to shoot. But generally speaking, those are the guys like you that go out and do it on their own, right? Like you put the effort in to learn and seek out training and do stuff beyond your your mandated training, right? And um, so what I would say is that the ego investment competitive shooters have in looking good and getting better has pushed many of them way further than the, I don't want to get murdered at work that a lot of armed professionals have. And that's a very weird human thing when you think about it. Because you think, I'm wearing body armor. I got a radio to my friends. I've got a gun. I got to carry on. Big gun, spare mags, rifle in the truck. Because someone might try to kill me. Versus, oh, man, old Billy makes fun of my reload every damn time. I'm, I'm going to work on that reload till, till it looks good because I'm tired of Billy making fun of me. And that guy working on that reload is usually working harder than that guy working on the draw for a life and death thing. And I don't think it's because that cop's a bad guy or something. It's not. It's that competition plays to your ego and it plays to, you know, it's, it's joyful. It's fun. It's eating a cheeseburger. Whereas like a lot of the guys on the tactical side, they treat everything like broccoli. And man, you can discipline yourself into a lot of broccoli, but at a certain point, you've got to find something that you enjoy and will make you do work because that's how you stay consistent over time. There you go. And then you mentioned something about what information can we say can be attributed or granted? And I may not have written that down correctly. So this is where I'm going to get Hillary probably. So um, uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was uh, Chris over CDR that said this is that like plans usually don't happen like they're supposed to, but planning is essential right? And I think there's an element of that to like, okay, well, like, 
where I'm not speaking to the soldier cop audience because I'm, I'm not them. I don't have the insight. I don't have the knowledge. But speaking to the average Joe, what's the best case scenario for an average Joe? As far as like how much knowledge and skill and stuff they can develop. Well, that average Joe probably look a lot like Gabe White or me or someone like that. There's a couple Spencer Keepers, someone like us, right? Um, but I see a lot of weirdness in training community about like, well, I only train with guys from this background. And it's like, okay, if you're a law enforcement officer, the lion's share of your training should be from people of that background. If you're a soldier, the lion's share of your training should probably be from people of that background. Now, as a civilian, it's a little different because, you know, both of those backgrounds are relevant, but have unique differences, right? And so I think you're in this situation where they'll say, like, why well, train with him? Because he did this. And that's something that you can't learn. That's some, like, he's the expert. He's experienced. He has this. But he can't give that to you. You cannot osmosis whatever mojo or magic he has. All you can do is be the best normal guy you can be. And you're never going to, you have not gone through that sorting process. Because I imagine that if you're a cop or a soldier, a lot of picking who you want on your side is I've seen how this person reacts under pressure and I trust them. The civilians, me, we don't get that because that's not our lifestyle. That's not our job. We don't ever get, get, go through that. So to me, what I can get is a mountain of technical skill and a broad array of experiences, force on force and martial arts and shooting, and put that together the best I can to make up as much as is possible for that deficiency in experience, right? Now, if that's the best we can do, what are you really buying when you spend all your time with a guy that you think is the coolest guy? Because on the one hand, we should all get together and figure out who the most badass dude is. Like, like who's been in the most gunfights and the great, and we'll all just do classes with only him, right? It's foolish. It doesn't make sense. And because the thing is, they say, well, I know things that can't be taught and I'll, I'll pay me so I can teach them. It's like, wait, you know, things that can't be taught. What am I paying for? Right. Like, like you're supposed to be teaching me. And so on the one hand, you need like the views of the people that have been there and done that. They have something that cannot be simulated. Right. Mm-hmm. But how much of that can be transmitted, I think, is an open question. And so I think the right answer is do work with real people, with real backgrounds that really matter. That should be the core of your training. But also accept the fact that as a regular person, the best thing you're going to get is a broad level experience as possible. So you're unlikely to be dealing with novelty beyond the novelty of it being real violence, probably for the first time. And as much technical skill as you can manage so that when it happens, this is a very simple technical problem because it's going to be chaotic and emotional in a way that, you know, a police officer or soldier, they're going to go through that many times potentially in their career. As an average Joe, you're probably going to get one ride, right? And you want to be as ready for that as you can. And we don't ever go through that sorting process. Mm -hmm. You know which guys on your shift you trust with your life. And you know the guys are going, man, I hope he's he's not the nearest guy on this call, right? We don't get that. 
And so we have to do our best to work around it. And I don't have a solid answer on that other than be open-minded, try new things. If something scares you, you should probably go try it a little bit. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I see from the the match side of things is they talk about uh, cops can't shoot, et cetera. And Brian Easter did, and I did, did a big episode on that. And so, okay, well, when when you get your stage brief and everything, we don't get that. <laughs> ours is the first time we know we're in the shootout is when the shootout started um yeah. and, and i and i will say universally skill does need to improve uh, if i want to paint with the big giant broad brush but you know cops are in chaotic situations day in and day out but very few of them are actual shooting situations yes and that's not something that you can get other than constantly being thrown into those chaotic situations and i gotta tell you if I could go through like everybody I know in the in the the training community, all right, if I can handpick my people from those group to be with me in the event that I have to fight for my life in a parking lot, that's the group that I want. But mm-hmm. if it's I have to take the random sample of gun owners or the random sample of cops, give me the random sample of cops. Yeah, I have, no, absolutely. And that's where that, that whole notion is crazy. Like, because I think it's an ego thing on, on a lot of like kind of like the Timmy civilian shooters like well cops can't shoot it's like was there some force field present preventing them from practicing like I you know I'm not aware yeah. that, that exists right um, but I think it is you look at like uh, the broad swath of law enforcement they have the training they received in service and most of them don't go beyond that and that that's really the real problem right is that service yeah. is adequate hopefully adequate to do police work. I'm sure it varies from place to place. Um, but like excellence, if you look at the people who are pursuing excellence, uh, you know, like a lot of normies are out there pursuing excellence, right? But if you look at the average dude at your gun range versus the average cop in your local town, I will pick the average cop over the average guy. at your gun. And remember, that guy at the gun range is in the top third of gun owners in your city right mm-hmm. and i'll take that average cop over that average guy every day of the week yeah so i think that's a big misnomer that people get get out of whack right yeah and it's the people that show up at gun classes are not the typical gun owner no but they tend to look at themselves like i own a gun i come do this i am typical and yeah. not they're you're one percent of of the whole thing and the tiniest part but but so that's the thing that that's where i think like like martial arts and like matches like i i get that there are serious like problems of matches but the problem is if you set up a match to be realistic no one would come mm-hmm. and that's what you see over and over again like like no offense i'm, I'm trying i'm speaking about my better so i'm trying you know don't think of the means i think i'm superior thing i don't but like you hear a lot of guys talking about, well, for six months here, there was this really cool match and it was great, but it's always some old thing from back in the day. It always dies on the vine. And it's like, it's like, if you ever see someone sit down and like grill Noam Komsky, like, well, what kind of government do you want? No, he's like, well, American government's obviously a mess. So, okay. What about Europe? They're kind of socialist over there. He's like, oh yeah, but still there's so many disparities. Like, all right, what about China? And it's like, oh, well, you know, they're not doing enough for the lower class. Well, okay. No, what government do well, who did it right? And it'll be like, there was six weeks in lower Catalonia during the Spanish revolution where things were just great. And I feel like a lot of the Timmies get kind of like that. Like there was this one little moment in time where things were good, mm-hmm. but it's always transitory. Like if you look at in my, I never went, 
but in my estimation, the best, like, how do you put it all together? How do you evaluate who knows this stuff best other than experience, you know, in a, in a controlled environment yeah. is the National Tactical Invitation, right? NTI. I never got to go. The year I was going to go is the year they canceled. So I was like, oh, okay. But that is a huge production. I mean, and those guys, from what I read, they just got exhausted of it and said, man, this is, this hurts. This isn't fun anymore. I don't want to do it. It's my understanding. Yeah. And so it's hard to put on stuff that's realistic, that's repeatable. So I think we have to settle for stuff that has a degree of artificiality, such as jujitsu or USPSA. And then we need to recognize the deficiencies of those repeatable things we can do over and over and then train around those details. I think that's the best we can do because, man, I'm here to tell you, I shot a lot of two-day pistol classes. They are real expensive compared to a jiu-jitsu membership or, or a USPSA membership, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that's it. I think it's having a holistic approach, taking the problem seriously, listening to the smart, experienced people, taking their advice. And trying to find a way to amalgamate all that into a personal practice that is responsible to you and your family and the people around you, you're avoiding negative outcomes. And you're investing in your skills as much as your interest, time, and finances allow. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good way of looking at it. Yeah, and, and I'll throw what I said just a second ago. I'll toss, toss it on the other end of it. If I know that the problem is that going to be nothing but a pure shooting problem. It's like, all right, boys, in just a second, we're going to have a buzzer. And then we're going to have a gunfight. I'll take the random sample of IDPA expert shooters over the random sample of cops. For sure. But in a real situation, who'd yeah. you take? I'd take the cop. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? For sure. Right. Yeah. And it's there's a certain level that, you know, the technical mastery is going to translate over to certain things on the other side of the application that if you, you can't all of a sudden acquire skill but there's so much more to the application than just technical mastery absolutely like we'll look at like let's say TACCON 16 example I smashed TACCON 16 right from a hit factor perspective Yeah. of the 20 guys in the top 20 would I be your number one pick to go into a scary situation if the answer is me you're picking poorly because you've got like Paul Sharp and Greg Elfritz and guys like that in there. And guess what? I'm not picking me. I'm picking them because they have relevant real world experience mated with like more than sufficient technical skill. And so, but at the same time, if you're never going to get real world experience, or if you do, it'll be a one-time ride probably, man, getting as much technical mastery as you can, that that's what you can invest in. Right sure. All right, Kirk, anything that you would like to address that I didn't ask you about tonight? Man, I think we talked about dang near everything tonight. Well, sure. sure. And if you don't want to, uh, totally understandable. We didn't prep this. But if you would like a minute to pay tribute to your father, I'd love to grant you that. Absolutely, man. Uh, you know, I have my dad to pay for everything. He's the one that, uh, you know, supported. He's the first guy ever took me shooting, took me hunting did nothing for me one day he brought out a sig 226 and a colt combat commander which were the only handguns we had at the time and i shot those and just some switch in my brain turned on and said oh nope this is your thing now and uh instead of you know like saying what's wrong with you kid (laughs) introduced me to all the right people and you know turned it into a, a good thing in my life 
and supported this weird little hobby of mine fully. And uh, beyond all that, he was an amazing man. And I was blessed to know him every single day I had with him. So, you know, I hope everyone has someone like that in their life. Absolutely. And God bless you for your time with him. Yes, sir. Uh, where can people find, I know you're starting to publish some works and you've got some really interesting articles coming up. Yeah. Uh, so I'm doing some training with citizens defense research over the John Johnson and Melody Lauer and the gang. Um, we got, I'll be assistant teaching a class in Edinburgh, Texas here in October. Go ahead and check the citizens defense research website for that. Um, in addition, uh, cryptidendeavors.com is going to be my blog. I've got some articles mostly done i'm just waiting to get them published and formatted and pushed out first one's going to be an interview with bill wilson that i think you'll enjoy excuse me not bill wilson but bill rogers that i think you'll enjoy and we've got some other fun stuff coming up after that and um that's basically me that's where you can find me what was the web address for your blog again cryptid c-r-y-p-t-i-d endeavors P-N-D-E-A-V-O-R-S.com. I'm on Instagram, Scripted Endeavors too. Okay. Uh, basically, someone once told me, you're like the least known guy in this that can do the things you can do. You're like some kind of Bigfoot out there in the woods doing stuff. And I was like, you know, I really like that idea of, yeah. you know, there's just some Bigfoot showing up to events and everyone's like, who the hell is that guy? Like, yeah. You know, so that's why I ran with yeah, I, I would love to be able to put links to everything in the show descriptions and stuff, but I've been running into a problem with that with the feeds, and so I've gotten very leery of doing that. Uh, so uh, maybe in this instance, send me the links, and I'll see if I can work them in there. If we have a problem, I'll just re-upload everything. Cool. Right. Uh, any closing thoughts? Uh, be good to each other. Remember, this is serious stuff. Uh, this is not stuff to be made light of. This is life and death things at the same time. If we do it right, responsibly, the goal is this is all just some weird hobby we had when we were younger and we can all talk about it like, man, look how much time and effort I wasted on that stuff. Well, I had a good time. We want to all say that when we're 80 if we can, right? Yeah. Cool. And this time next week, we'll get to see each other, man. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I'm pretty burnt. I, I'm open-minded. I don't, whether or not I shoot the match is just going to be on how I feel that day. I don't know if I'm going to do it or not. We're going to find out. Yeah. I did not shoot it last year because I was teaching three revolver classes. And so I carried, I had to pack all of my revolver gear, et cetera. And I flew and I got everything packed and like turned around to get my normal gear that I was would shoot with. And I'm like, I don't have room. That's too much. I don't have room. And so I didn't shoot the match just last year. Uh, this year, I've got uh, local contactors driving out and is going to carry some of my gear with them. And uh, so I may have room to pack stuff and may shoot the match this year. So we'll, we'll, me, we'll see. For me, I'm at a point in this where it's it's as much performance art as anything else. Mm-hmm. I'm just debating between, you know, I know I'm not intellectually or physically my best right now. And do I want to go and try to put on a performance that I'm not? in a good space for or do i just want to say yolo let's let's see what happens we'll see what happens there There you go all right man kirk i always enjoy talking with you i'm looking forward to seeing you next week well of course by the time everybody hears this it'll be this week but uh i'm looking forward to seeing you and all of our uh all of our crew that we get to see once a year at at TACCON. and um to the audience uh Once again, thank you uh, for choosing to spend your time with us. And remember, only share the links with your smart friends.